Hi and welcome back for part 5 of our series on the wilderness years. This week we're looking at uh, a very small incident from Exodus chapter 17, just the first seven verses. And at first reading, the story is actually very similar to what we have seen already and what we are going to see again before we uh, leave the wilderness in some weeks' time. The basic format is simple. The people lack something, in this case water. They moan about it to Moses. They suggest that he deliberately brought them out from Egypt to kill them all. Moses prays to God and God sorts it. That's the basic framework of a lot of the different stories that we're going to be looking at on our journey through the wilderness. But there are a couple of interesting features, uh, as always, to this story today, which will make it worth our while to have a little bit of a deeper look. The first thing to say is that the story is what is known as an etiology, that's spelt uh, beginning with A-E, etiology, and an etiology is basically a story from the past which is told to explain a contemporary feature in some way. Very often, as here, it's a place name. Why is this place called so-and-so? Well, because that's because of something that happened in the past. Um, at other times, uh, it might be a custom. So you've got an etiology in uh, Genesis 32, 32, after Jacob is uh, injured whilst wrestling with God. And the author tells us that's why to this day, Israelites don't eat the tendon which is attached to the hip joint. And the clue, although it doesn't feature in this story, uh, the clue is often the phrase to this day. So when your kids ask you, why is the place where we live called Meribah? You tell them the story about uh, in the distant past people finding fault with God. That's what the name means in Hebrew, the place of fault finding. And uh, as a result of that, uh, this place is called that. Massar, by the way, is a completely different place and doesn't feature at all in the parallel story which we'll get to eventually in Numbers chapter 20. But tradition has put them together in Psalm 95, what Anglicans call the Venite, and also in Deuteronomy 33. And because of Hebrew parallelism, you know, we're in uh, the Hebrew poetry, they say the same thing twice. Uh, in Psalm 95, you've got Massar linked with Meribah. And so obviously, at some point into this narrative has been uh, edited back in that piece of parallelism. 
even though Massar has nothing at all to do with that story. The place is an actual place. It's Meribar, and we're not sure exactly where it is to this day, um, but it does mean the place of fault-finding, and that's clearly what the uh, allusion is to here. Note again in verse 2, that to find fault with Moses is, in effect, to test God. Uh, and a reminder, once again, that our leaders under God are special, they are important, and they deserve the same kind of honour that God would have. Not the same kind of worship, obviously, but the same kind of honour. And that might be... Uh, a little bit harder if your leaders are not quite as omnicompetent and brilliant as Moses was. But the point is they still deserve our respect uh, for their position, if not always for their personalities stroke abilities. Again, we see them here accusing Moses of ulterior bad motives. Again, they refuse to learn from what they have seen God doing in the past. And remember, this isn't the distant past. Or I can remember, you know, back in the 1960s, God answered a prayer for me once. We're, we're talking here probably a few days ago, weeks at the most. Um, but they're refusing to trust him with the future because they have seen him prove faithful in the past. Instead, Moses begins to fear for his life, and this is a, a new development. The sticks and stones and the names of previous incidents couldn't hurt him, but the stones here might. So how is God going to respond this time? The first thing to note, and this is going to become important, is that he promises his presence. I will go and stand by the rock. The unseen presence of God actually pervades the whole of this cycle. And as I say, that's going to uh, become significant in a few chapters' time. The people may doubt him, but he's there. Secondly, interestingly, Moses is told to take his staff. And the narrator reminds us that this is the staff he used to turn the Nile into blood. And I wonder what people thought when they saw that. Presumably it wasn't just like Moses' walking stick that he uh, had with him all the time. That The fact that he's specifically told to take it, I wonder what the people see in that. Do they perhaps see a symbol of God's deliverance from the past, a symbol of God's ability to do the supernatural to, to perform miracles through his servant Moses? 
So, so does the rod in that case function as a reminder that just as this rod has been used so powerfully in the past, so it's going to be used again for their rescue, for their salvation? Or I wonder, alternatively, whether uh, maybe for some what they saw was the instrument of punishment once wielded against Pharaoh, but now as a threat to them for their moaning attitudes. I, I wonder whether some were even just a little bit frightened when they saw that staff because of their negative attitudes to God. This staff which has caused such terror, such punishment on unrepentant Egypt was it now going to be wielded against them? Is Moses motivated by the very fear for his life about to use it as a weapon against the people? Could be seen in either way there, couldn't it? But fortunately, God uses the staff to save, not to destroy and Moses hits the rock, and out flows water. Once again, the people are saved. Once again, a further piece of cumulative evidence that God is for them. He is able to provide miraculously. That they're secure in his hands for the whole journey. Evidence of course, from which, surprise, surprise, they're not going to learn. But this time there is just a, that little bit of a sting in the tail with that etiology. The place where this happens gets named after the incident. And what a terrible indictment on those Jewish people it is for their lack of faith that a perpetual memory in this in the terms of this place name is there to this day and as a reminder of their lack of faith their unjust accusation of both god and his appointed leader from that time on the place is called the place of fault finding most of the time i'm proud to live in Sheffield, although I'm sure there are some dark skeletons in its historical cupboard, um, as with most other cities, Bristol obviously has been in the uh, news fairly recently. But if I lived in a place called Grumbling by the Marsh or something like that, I think I'd feel less proud about that comment on human nature. But it's also a further reminder, and, and there's a further reminder hidden in this story of God's complete provision for those who are his people. And I'm going to go slightly off piste here, but this is, I think this is just interesting. There was apparently a rabbinic legend that after the miraculous spring of water from this rock the Israelites chiseled a piece of it off and took it with them 
for the rest of their journey. And so the story goes, each night this rock, this piece of rock, would be laid in front of Moses' tent and each day from it would come forth twelve springs of water, one uh, of course for each tribe of Israel. And they never lacked water again. And the only other water story that we get is the one in Numbers 20, which I mentioned, which is clearly the same incident, but told by uh, a different source with one or two differences. We'll, we'll get to that in due course. Well, whether you believe that story or not, St Paul was clearly aware of that tradition. And I think it's that story which informs his stuff in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's encouraging the Corinthian Christians not to lose the plot, not to uh, give up, not to live in ways which would displease God. Um, and he does that by making the point that although all the nation of Israel went on the same journey and ate the same manner and drank the same water, yet not all made it to the promised land. And in fact, the, the wilderness uh, we're going to see becomes littered with the bodies of many of them because they lost the plot, because they turned against God. Therefore, says Paul, make sure that you don't fall away and displease God. Uh, but he alludes in that passage to the idea that the rock from which they all drank travelled with them for the entire journey. And in fact, he goes on to identify that rock with the pre-incarnational Christ. Uh, I don't know about you, I don't often think of Jesus as travelling through the wilderness with those people, but Paul suggests that he did just as he walks with us through our journey, providing for us, leading us, giving us all that we need. So once again, in yet another story, which is, you know, in many ways similar to many of the stories in this cycle, we're challenged to put our trust in God to count our blessings rather than grizzling about our misfortunes and to allow what we have seen God do in the past to build faith for what we will see him do in the future. Now we're going to return to this theme later but just consider how awful it would be to live for the rest of our lives in a place called fault-finding. Bye.